Hey everybody, I'm Jack Lingenfelter, and we are back with all new episodes of the Straws That Stir the Drinks podcast. Thank you for tuning in to today's guest, Rick Burgess. In these new episodes, we will focus on the theme, What's Your Why? I'll be asking all new guests why they do what they do. Rick, of course, is best known for his popular show, The Rick and Bubba Show. And recently, I was fortunate enough to speak with him about what it means to be a person with a platform in 2020. Check it out. Mr. Rick Burgess, thank you for joining me today. Well, what a pleasure. It's good to, to be with you. I'm excited about uh, this podcast endeavor that you've been on, and, and I'm honored that you've uh, allowed me to be a guest. Yes, sir. Thank you. So you're obviously uh, best known for the Rick and Bubba show. You've got, a, am assuming, a huge setup now over the years. It's grown. I'm wondering, though, where did it come from? Where did the idea come from, if that makes sense? Um, where did it all start for you? Well, honestly, I can say this as a kid, and, and, and I'm really not that helpful to people sometimes when young people come up to me and say, hey, I don't know what I want to do in my life. I, I can't figure it out. I don't know what I want to do in college. Can you help me? And I, sometimes I say, no, not really, because I don't know what that was like. Uh, I, I actually have always known that I was going to be in radio from the time I was a little boy. God just impressed that on me. I had a passion for it. Uh, I, I remember doing uh, radio shows on little recorders uh, with record players, and um, I remember taping a microphone to a plastic baseball bat and sticking it in a chair and doing shows, and it's just what I have always wanted to do, and, and God gave me a passion for it. So uh, I went, uh, I played, I, I liked uh, radio, music, and football. I really had no other interest. Uh, and so when I went into college to play football, I was introduced to a campus radio station uh, after doing all my you know, fake show at home. And I started working on a campus radio station at Jacksonville State University. Uh, and that uh, was my you know, how to learn to run the equipment, how to get comfortable on the air. And then I just began to work my way from um, the campus radio station to, you know, a paying job at a local radio station on the weekends where they told me to say nothing, uh, just run the syndicated programs. Uh, and, uh, and then I went from there to, you know, getting a job during the week and then getting an afternoon show, then getting a midday talk show. And then I went to work for an FM station, back to doing music radio. And then when I was at that FM station, uh, uh, Bubba and I actually had gone to college together, and we took a Spanish class together, which um, the teacher w- had actually fled Castro uh, when he took over, and she said trying to teach us Spanish made her want to go back to Castro. And uh, and so that was um, – but we met each other in that class. Bubba was more on the engineering side of things, uh, and he was not on the air. Um, and so he went to be an engineer to, at a radio station – contacted me, said they're looking for a new morning show host here. I told them they should hire you. Uh, long story short, I came there where he was the engineer, uh, and I had like zero listeners, and I was I was dying on the vine. So I said, I'm going to start talking to this guy I went to college with, brought him into the studio. Uh, one day I had him do Shakespeare in a southern voice because he has uh, quite an accent. He makes me sound like I'm from New York City. And um, and so it was called Good Old Boy Theater, and so people had to guess what Shakespearean play he was quoting from, and then uh, the Rick and Bubba show was formed in 1994. I came back in January of 24, after that year of 93, and said, 
I think I'm going to make the engineer my co-host, which my general manager was thrilled and says, you must be out of your mind. I said, let's, let's see how it goes. So in 94, the Rick and Bubba show went on the air, uh, and we have uh, been on there ever since. So that's pretty, that's, that's changed a lot over the years. How, how do you think that it's changed specifically from like, I'd say when you really started kicking off in the Rick and Bubba show until like today in, in, you know, in the modern coronavirus era, how has it changed in terms of maybe what you're talking about and maybe, you know, what kind of subject matters you really find important? Well, I'll do twofold. As far as topics, uh, more what you're talking about, then I want to talk about how major things have changed technologically and what we're talking right now on a podcast is one of those things. But uh, that's what's changed the most is is how people get the content of the show. But the content of the show, it's like, well, Seinfeld was a show about nothing. Ours has always been a show about anything. And so when I became a follower of Christ uh, in 1996, uh, I remember thinking – am I supposed to talk about this on secular radio? And I didn't, you know, I was like, I, I guess I'm supposed to go to Christian radio. And I, and I just never felt God pulling me that way. And I, I had just started being discipled by the local church that my wife and I had joined after we both became followers of Christ and had been redeemed. And he said, you should talk about your faith. And I was like, on a secular radio show? He was like, I thought your show was about anything. And he said, why, is it, why are you not talking about the most important thing in your life? And so I and I was and I was intimidated by that to begin with because I was just a, a, a spiritual baby, and so I didn't know if I would get it right. Would I say something wrong? Uh, but you know, we started weaving that into the show, and so over time, uh, the way content has changed is uh, there's a strong spiritual dynamic to it. Even though to this day we're on around seventy secular radio stations, and then of course. Uh, technologically what has really changed, which has been kind of cool, is we're really not limited by terrestrial radio anymore. And where we're growing the most is on podcast archives, on a streaming app, uh, on YouTube, uh, live and archived, uh, Pandora, Spotify, uh, iHeartRadio. And so now we're we're only limited by your access to cellular service or Wi-Fi. And you can hear us anywhere in the world. And that has helped open up our show, you know, from a Southern culture, but has opened up us up to talk to people in Los Angeles and, and New York City and uh, Connecticut and, you know, Chicago and, and Philadelphia. And it's interesting because where it, it, at one time, if you were in the South, everything was coming to you from somewhere else. And we're actually taking the South and sending it out to all these other places. So the the way content is consumed, I wouldn't even call us a radio show anymore. Uh, I would say that there's Rick and Bubba content available every day and people go and consume it, you know, in, under all these different ways. So I guess I have to ask this question now, but how has COVID-19 and the coronavirus really affected the Rick and Bubba show and the content that y'all produce at a, a, a global level or, or an international level, you know, because like you were saying, you've got it on podcast, Apple podcast, I heard radio and, and this, that and the other. So how has, if it's even affected you at all, if it's even slowed the Rick and Bubba show down, how has that really changed? Well, I feel very fortunate because, you know, even though advertising wise and the the second quarter, we, we we definitely took a hit nationally because you had people that <laughs> they can't advertise if they're not open. Uh, but then we had another problem that I never could could have thought of, 
we had a lot of this e-commerce business, and they had so much business, they stopped advertising too because they couldn't keep it with demand. I mean, if you're a, a HelloFresh.com and you deliver groceries to people's door, <laughs> you don't need any more business. If you're a ButcherBox.com and you send meat to people's door, uh, and so we started realizing we were losing revenue because people were saying we, we can't meet demand, so we're pulling off the air too. So we took a, a hit, but by the grace of God, nobody on the show has ever missed a paycheck. And so we feel very fortunate about that. We've had times that we had to split up and not all be in the same studio. We've had to use the you know technology of, of Zoom and, and uh, Comrex and things like that to set up. You know, nowadays, when you used to say a home studio, that was a major ordeal. Right now, we're talking on a home studio that we set up in about, what, 10 minutes? Mm -hmm. So it's much simpler. The technology makes it simpler to do that. But I think you still, not so much what we're doing, this is fine, but when you do a, a show that involves an ensemble of a team, there's a rhythm to it. And when, when you're doing the show from home as opposed to being in the studio, even as great as the technology is, you lose that rhythm. You can't really get a feel for how it's going. There's a, there's a beat and a rhythm to it, uh, and that, that was affected uh, definitely. And, and COVID has played a, played a role in that and the fact that people, though, have more time on their hands. So our time spent listening actually went up uh, because people were looking for anything to do. There's obviously a lot of things that you've been able to do because of the Rick and Bubba show, a lot of people that you've been able to reach. And one of those things that you've created is the Man Church. You're here right now in Douglas, Georgia, uh, because of the Man Church, and I'm sure because of your popularity and growth through Rick and Bubba. So how did that come along? Was it, well, now that I'm growing, uh, where can I use my talents now? Can, how can I expand? Well, I started, I started speaking, you know, just in general, um, and I love doing that. But during the years that I had, you know, small children, it, you know, I had to really be careful because to your to your kids, you may be going out to speak at a revival somewhere, and man, this I'm doing kingdom work, but to your kids, you're just gone. That's all they know. You're gone, and you know, and, I, and you can't say I'm going to go and talk to a bunch of people about how to be a better dads. Sorry, I won't be home today. And, and so, in those days, we really balanced balanced it a lot different, and I and I I, I wouldn't go out all that much at all because I wanted to coach my kids in Little League, and I wanted to be there and go to church with them. And so, but when, when I became an empty nester, um, you know, uh, God woke me up in, in uh, the wee hours of the morning and, and told me that I was to disciple men. And I mean, just as clear, I got up and I was so overwhelmed by the presence of it, I actually got on my bed and got on my knees, and I'm like, I don't know if God's about to kill me. I mean, really, honestly, I, I didn't know what was going to happen. And, and it kept pressing on me that he was going to be calling, as he always has throughout Scripture, I'm calling a remnant, I'm calling a remnant. And so we have these four chairs in our, our house where we pray and make major decisions. And uh, my wife used my own words against me because she wrote a book that took her five years about the earthly death of our youngest son called Bronner, A Journey to Understand, which is, I, 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 I'm prejudiced, of course, but I've had other people uh, that write books. Andy Andrews, who's a very well-known author, um, he, he, he read, it, read it and said there's been attempts at this topic, but this book that God wrote through my wife on the topic of where is God in pain and suffering, it has no equal. Because most of them you read, you kind of come off saying, well, I'm glad that didn't happen to me. This one actually says, here's who God is, here's what Scripture says in a very deep way. Well, during that time of her writing it, it was very difficult. It took five years. 
and which I'm glad it took five years because we, we hadn't learned what God wanted to teach us. Sometimes you rush these kind of things out too quick and you haven't learned what God's teaching you. So God did a long time to be sure that she had learned everything he was teaching us. So when she used to get down and couldn't finish it, I would say, well, if God called you to do something, you have to do it. And so I'm sitting there in that chair, and she's like, what's wrong with you? And I said, God's called me to something I don't want to do. And she said, what do you mean? I said, I like going and speaking, upsetting everybody, and leaving. And I said, and God is calling me to disciple the men of my local church, and I don't want to do it. And she said, well, if God's called you to do something, you then I guess you better do it. And I said, you're using my words against me. And she goes, yes, I am. And so I went to my pastor, and I said, do we believe what we preach every Father's Day? He said, be more specific. I said, every Father's Day in every church I've ever been in, they say that God has given the most influence to a man, that men and women are equal, but they're not the same. Equal in their standing as co-heirs of Christ, but different duties. And there has to be headship in any institution that God put together, including the home, and God himself gave that headship to the man. And we say that every Father's Day. We even do Barna surveys about the influence of a man spiritually in the home versus the wife, the children, etc. I said, do we believe that? And he said, yes. And I said, would the budget of the church reflect that? And there was a dead silence. And he said, no, it wouldn't. And I said, so we say on Father's Day that the men's ministry is the most important ministry in the church, and then the rest of the year we act like it's, it's the least important. So it's one thing to bring this up, but it's another thing to actually do something about it. And I didn't want to be these guys that sits in the stands. You know, my dad was a football coach, and I remember my brother, who's very colorful, telling people who would complain when a play didn't work. He said, well, we all can call it right after it's over. Uh, the thing about what you have to do as a coach is actually call the play before it's ever run. And and so I didn't want to be those people that shot holes and everything but didn't do anything about it. So I began to look in Scripture, uh, Deuteronomy 16, 16, Exodus 34, 23, and I saw that Moses was being told by God that three times a year he wanted the men. Bring me the men three times a year, and then I'll instruct them what I want done. So I thought, well, Moses wasn't on a quarter system, but we are. What if there was a service, not an event, but a service for men? Because there needs to be a place where the pastor or the speaker or the teacher can speak to men the way that men are made. You can't disciple or reach men if you talk to them like they're a woman or a child. Well, when the pastor's doing the regular service, he shouldn't do that because he's got women and children in the room. He's speaking to the entire family, the entire church. So where, like God was doing with Moses, where can we go to get the men pulled away and get them in front of somebody that's just for them? So we designed these gatherings of men, and then we would come out of these gatherings into small group Bible studies. And it was really working really, really well. So I started thinking, well, what if we went further and we actually provided the curriculum for the small groups? Because I was running into men that were coming up to me going, what are we going to teach next? Uh, well, can you expository teach? I don't know. I don't feel comfortable with that yet. I'm still growing. And I'd go try to find a book, go try to find this and whatever. And there's just not a lot out there for men's ministry. There's some books that are not bad, some great authors that I love. The one the most I ever saw was a six-week Bible study. So in six weeks, they're coming back again going, well, you want to do next? So we thought, well, let's develop a curriculum 
that, that has 40 weeks out of the year. That leaves you 12 weeks for holidays and all this kind of stuff, 40 weeks out of the year. So the men are gathering, getting high challenge. Then they're leaving the high challenge, and they're going into small groups that has a curriculum that gives them high equipping. So you're challenging and you're equipping, and it has you know in, entrance ramps either coming into a gathering are coming into a small group, but once you come into this discipleship strategy, you get into a circle, picture a clock, there's a service at the top of the hour, the bottom of the hour, on each quarter hour, and in between those services, they're in small group curriculum, and then the manchurch.com was born, and, uh, and that discipleship strategy is being implemented in churches all over the country. I'm sure you knew that it was probably going to be harder in today's modern times to create a man church and a, and a program like that. But did you expect all the challenges to come along with it? How was it creating that in today's modern age? Well, I did expect it because I said if we do it right, I said then we'll have all kinds of problems. Uh, because the adversary has been destroying men. The adversary bought into the man church a long time ago. He says, if I destroy men, I destroy so much. And everywhere you go to find problems, you find the men are the problem. Well, our society right now says men are not the solution to anything. Men are the problem. So what a great time to actually go counterculture, because Jesus has always been counterculture, and say, we're not afraid of masculinity. We're not going to be into demonizing uh, men as a bad thing. We're not going to break down the patriarchal family that God put together. We're going to embrace it, but we're going to get, we're going to take that influence that God gave a man, and we're going to put it under the authority of Christ. And we're not going to apologize for that. Uh, we're, 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 we're unapologetic about placing it as a priority. Um, and, yeah, we've had a lot of obstacles. And I remember one time when we, we had our first big obstacle in the beginning, uh, and I said, I'm actually thankful for this. And somebody said, why? I said, this was going so smooth, I didn't think God was in it. Uh, and, and so once we started having and – then, and then we launched on March 1, and, and that's when the COVID – pandemic hit, I said, this is really going to be good. And uh, so we really have almost got a, a grand opening, for lack of a better term, that's happening now because people are getting more comfortable starting it and getting in some gatherings and all that. But there's been a lot of challenges, but there should be because the most influence is what God gave a man. So it's high reward, but it's going to be high challenge as well. You've been speaking about it, that it's harder to speak up for what you believe in to, uh, today. And if there's problems, that that's good. You know, you should expect problems. So what do you say to the people that are afraid to stand up for what they believe in and just, you know, be affected by the culture and, and kind of get washed away in, in the world and not really stand for what they believe in? Well, you're going to have a problem with Jesus on that because Jesus said that we are to, not, to deny ourselves and to pick up our cross uh, and, and come with him daily. Well, if you pick up your cross, then you die to yourself. And if you're denying yourself, can anything be more counter to this culture? Uh, and so and he said, anyone who professes me in front of men, I will acknowledge before the Father. Anybody who does not acknowledge me before men, I will not acknowledge before the Father. Uh, Paul writes to young Timothy and says, hey, let everybody know that all who choose to live a godly life will be persecuted. Not some, all. So I would say if you don't want to stand up for Jesus, you probably don't know Jesus. Because to know him is to love him, and to love him is to obey him. And so we have a theme on this podcast, and we've just started to kind of ask this same question every time um, we, we have an episode, and that's the simple statement of what's your why? 
And we, we're going to start asking every guest this uh, every time. And so what the statement simply means is, why do you do what you do? You know, we've talked a lot about Christ and, and the man church. And so, you know, why is it that you keep doing the Rick and Bubba show and you keep coming out to churches to talk about the man church? Well, it's the only thing that matters to me. It's the only thing that keeps me alive. It is my lifeblood, uh, my whole goal is to stand before my Lord and Savior and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I think about uh, this, uh, and Paul, and we'll talk about this tonight, so you're getting it, and you're going to have to hear it again. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10, this is a cool moment. Paul says, the Apostle Paul says, I shouldn't even be an apostle because I persecuted the church. I was passionately wrong. I was killing women. I was grabbing children. I was killing people and hauling them in, all thinking I was doing the right thing. But it was the wrong thing. And he's still thinking about all these people that he persecuted. And he says, I shouldn't even be a, an apostle. I'm the least of the apostles, so I work harder than all of them. He says, but the only thing about me that's, that's, that's anything worth anything is, is because of the grace that has been shown me. And here's the why. He says, but that grace will never be in vain. God is never going to look on my life and say that the grace that he gave me was in vain. He got no return on it. Yeah, it's grace that I was given, but there's going to be a response to that grace, not to earn my salvation, but that so God never thinks that he, he gave me grace in vain. He will get a return on it, and that's what drives me every single day. If the Rick and Bubba show hasn't pointed anybody to Jesus, it's been a monumental waste of time. So I think my last question here before we wrap it up is what's next for you, Mr. Rick Burgess? I know you've got a lot of things coming. You've got a lot of things that you've created because of your Rick and Bubba show, because of, you know, your service in Christ. So what do you think is next for you? It's a great question. I don't feel any call to stop doing what I'm doing because the show and what we do ministry-wise just works. There's great synergy to that. Uh, but if God calls me to something beyond this and more of a, you know, a vocational ministry call on my life, then I would certainly I'll do whatever he tells me to do. Uh, but I think right now, uh, just with my finite mind on what I know, it is to do what I'm doing right now, but to watch it grow. I mean, themanchurch.com is in its infancy. The Rick and Bubba show uh, has been around for you know 27 years at the end of this year, uh, but I feel like we're just getting started. I get up every day and, and can't wait to do what God gifted me to do. Well, thank you, Mr. Rick Burgess, for uh, coming in today, for talking with me. You're a huge inspiration, obviously, not just to me, but for everybody, I think, that is able to have the chance to listen to you. So thank you. Well, you're kind to say that. And to see somebody of your age so passionate about this, I think, gives all of us hope. Well done, man. Thank you so much.